Good morning. We welcome you in the name of the Lord. There we go. Thank you. My name is Peter Holmes, Dr. Holmes. I'm uh, uh, from England and uh, have actually uh, known Derry for some 30, 34 years. Brian and Sam and others for about 14, 15 and uh, have recently joined the staff to work part-time here. I'm also a pastor down in Tiki Island in Galveston in Texas, and uh, I commute between the two places. And I have a wife awaiting me there, and uh, it's Mary. We've been married 38 years. I have a son who's 33 who's doing doctoral work in England. My name is Susan Williams, uh, Dr. Susan Williams. I am from England. I know you've <coughs> gathered that already. I bring you greetings from Christchurch Deal. Uh, Christchurch is a small congregation in a little town called Deal in Kent, which overlooks the southeast corner of England, looking out over France. We've been working together now for 25 years, and uh, Susan originally came to me as a client looking for help on her journey, and I couldn't get rid of her. And uh, I'm still here. And uh, we're here to look at a most amazing subject from the most amazing man that ever lived. our friend, our Lord, our Saviour, Christ. So, good morning, Journey. Nice to be with you. It's a privilege to be sharing in ministry with you this morning. Thank you for your welcome. Matthew 10, 7 and 8. As you go, proclaim this message the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, so freely give. Those are two relatively short verses from the gospel. And yet look at the significance, the power, the heart of the message that they carry. Peter, read them again for us. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, so freely give. What we have here is a command from Christ. It's not a command that he saved up to give to those who had graduated out of Bible college and they got top grades in their theology and so they were ready to take up this command. Actually, what we have here is a command that Christ gave to disciples who were still trying to figure out how the world worked. They were still trying to figure out who it was that Christ was. 
What an outrageous command. When you look at those two verses, the theme running all the way through, which is the theme of Easter and the resurrection message, it's healing and it's wholeness. The challenge for the disciples was that they had seen Jesus do it, but they really weren't sure that they could. And they had to learn how to do it. And Christ's ministry, his anointing, his authority, his spirit, gave them the capacity to move out and try it. And we don't have any record, actually, of what happened all the mistakes, all the fumblings, all the failures, all the half effect. And yet, Christ required it, demanded it from them. Healing and wholeness in the Gospels, in Christ's ministry, it's not just restricted to those who have extreme need. When you read the Gospels, healing and wholeness are for everybody. This is a central message. It's the fruit of the resurrection. Healing and wholeness are for everyone. For the disciples, it became a central plank of their future. For them, it was the practical evidence that Messiah had come. It was in everybody's face. There it was. People being healed. People being delivered. People being raised from the dead, even. I've met several that have been raised from the dead during my ministry. And just about everything else there I've been part of and privileged for many, many years. Christ has given us everything we need to live this command. So that is good news, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? But mm, there's a bit of a downside to it. <clears throat> Indeed. Because when you look at the way that Christ ministered healing and wholeness to people. He didn't really make it easy for people. This isn't the soft, cushy, cuddly kind of healing and fluffy wholeness. Healing. Fluffy mm. healing. Yeah, fluffy no, it's, not, yeah. it's not that kind of healing and wholeness that we see Christ exercising in people's lives. The problem is, of course, that Christ was a tough man. He made extreme demands on people. He didn't make it easy for any person to benefit from his power and anointing. Because everything he did, he required be done publicly. And people have said to me in the past when I've made that comment, ah, but what about Nicodemus? I said, well, uh, we know exactly what that conversation was about because it's been published in the most popular book on earth. 
Nicodemus may have wanted to keep it secret. He came in the dead of the night, didn't he? But really, it's not a well-kept secret now, is it? If you have a need for healing and wholeness, maybe there's areas of pain or fear or shame or guilt or... Actually, what we would all rather do is go find out the solution privately. Pay a therapist, one-to-one, confidentiality covered. Get healed privately. And then, when it's all gone and we're feeling transformed, then we can declare it publicly. Is that the way Christ did it? Sorry, folks. Nope. He did it the other way around. He required that people came with their need in public first. In fact, it was harder than that even. Can you imagine the leper coming up to Christ or the blind man being led through the crowds to Jesus? And again and again and again, he looked them in the eye and he said, what do you want from me? What an insult to the man being let down by, through the roof that was the cripple. The man whose skin was all rotten and gnarled. The man who could not see. Or the dumb demoniac. Christ requires we declare our need. And if we don't, we don't receive. So we have a God who has a heart of the most outrageous love. An unquenchable, all-powerful, life-transforming love. But this God in this outrageous love is still tough on people. He sets the bar and he guarantees the healing. But he requires us to convince him that we're desperate and very hungry to receive it. Now that's how Christ treated people in his ministry on earth. We should expect no different, folks. I'm now going to ask uh, Brandon to come up and uh, sing a beautiful song. Many of you will probably know Ron Harris. He was a band leader, he was a pianist, songwriter, traveled with some of the biggest names in the industry from the 1940s to the 1980s. But he spent three weeks in every four on the road. His life and his experience of his children was on the end of a phone. And on one particular night, he's staying at the Fairmont in New Orleans in the presidential suite. He's got everything he wants or needs. He puts the phone down after talking with his family, his children, and just breaks down into tears at the appalling loneliness that he feels inside him. 
We've all been there, haven't we? And he suddenly realized that the Lord was there. And he wept before the Lord and gave him his pain. And he wrote this song. This very room, there's quite enough love for one like me. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for one like me. And there's quite enough hope and quite enough power to chase away any clue for Jesus Lord Jesus is in this very
Lord Jesus, we welcome your manifest glory in our midst now. We welcome your Holy Spirit to move amongst us. We roll out the red carpet for you. Lord, Redeemer, we bow before you, creator of the heavens and the earth and the creator of every one of us. Be Lord as we open this scripture together. Amen. Matthew 14, verses 22 to 32. We're going to look at three instances in the life of Christ where he didn't just make it tough, he almost made it impossible for those that came to him for help. The finished work of Christ and the resurrection opened up the way for every one of us to live a supernatural life, a life that follows the commands of the Great Commission, that follows the commands to prove the evidence of Messiah. And we begin with a tough one. It's the evening and Jesus tells his disciples to go in the boat onto the lake And there's a storm coming, a terrible storm. Ask the disciples that were fishermen. They knew what was happening. But they did as they were told. They got in the boat, and he pushed them out, and then walked away and left them. Went up in the hills to pray, and he came down during the night. By this time, the storm is raging. The boat's filling with water, and they're in fear of drowning. And what does Christ do? He just walks by them, walking on the water. Excuse me. And it's quite clear from the story that he had no intentions of even waving to them and saying hi. He was just out there. And they're shouting at the top of their voices, Lord, help us! Help us, Lord! We're drowning! What got his attention was not the shouts, but this foolhardy, impetuous disciple that got out of the boat and started walking on water as well. But then he had a panic attack and began to sink. At that point, the Lord came lifted him, helped him back into the boat, and there was calm. Now, the Greek is absolutely emphatic here that actually Jesus was walking past them. <laughs> Got it? If they hadn't asked, they were in for a miserable time. The boat would have sunk and it could well have been that some of them would have drowned. 
They needed to ask Christ for help, to call on his name and show evidence of their desperateness. What a miserable message. But there are many illustrations in Christ's life that that is exactly what he demanded. Turn to another passage. Mark 5, 22 to 34. This is the woman who has internal hemorrhaging, internal bleeding. She's had it for many years, 14 years, and she's spent a fortune trying to get healed. It's not happened. And now she is desperate. She's holding out for anything and hears about Jesus. Now, this is a woman who's unclean. A woman who's not allowed to touch anything. Because if she does, it becomes unclean as well. And she's pushing through the crowd, and she touches Christ's robe. And the bleeding stops instantly. Susan and I have had several experiences of this happening for women instantly in our ministry. And Christ turns around. Who touched me? Oh my. Why didn't he just let her take her healing and not make an issue of it? Why didn't he just let her go away? How dare he make a public shame and disgrace of her? Well, she acted in a typical way because when Christ looked around the crowd and saw her, and she blurted it all out publicly. Oh, God, what a mess. And everyone hears it. And the whispers start going through the crowd at what had happened to this woman and who she was. Well, that's the story as it's recorded. But behind that is another story. And this particular story is the reality of what Christ was really doing. This woman was unclean. We don't know what had happened to her. We know no history. But her bleeding had made her unclean. And anything that she did became contaminated because she was unclean. Mosaic law was absolutely clear. She was not allowed to eat with her family. She was not allowed to prepare food. She was not allowed to sleep with her husband. She was not allowed to go to the synagogue or to the temple. So for 14 years, this woman had had this hanging over her. Now, normally, a man would divorce her. 
And in the Jewish tradition, he only has to point a finger at her and say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, gets rid of her and looks for someone who isn't unclean. Tough stuff. But there is this hint that she had wealth at one time. So it's very likely that she didn't divorce, but she lived a lie. And no one actually knew that she was unclean. Going down and taking the water from the well, kneading the bread and putting it into the oven, all the things that you do, it was all unclean, and she probably told no one. Either way, she was living a lie. And this appalling treatment by Christ of not letting her go quietly away with her healing Well, that meant that everything was going to be different now. And the beauty of Christ's mercy towards this woman was that she had a new beginning, a fresh start. There would have been people from her village, people from her street. And now she just had to explain it, and she didn't mind because she was healed. Christ had a value system and a way of dealing with people that no one else quite saw at the time. Mark 11, 12 to 14. Christ is walking through the town and he sees a fig tree out of season. He sees there are no figs on it, so he curses it and it dies. Well, of course it wouldn't have figs on it. This was Passover. This was the spring. Figs don't bear fruit. There's nothing to eat yet except these horrible, nasty, hard nuts. Oh yes, when Christ looked at the fig tree, he could tell immediately because it had no pasha fruit, early fruit. Early fruit was what fell and the poor people were allowed to take it. I've tried eating some of it, you have to boil it for hours to get it soft, it's awful. But it is nutrient, it's nourishment, it's protein. Christ cursed the tree because it bore no fruit. And it seems unfair to us that he did that, but it was a deliberate, highly instructive, public warning by Christ that he would not tolerate fruitlessness. He expects fruit. 
because he has done everything he needs to do to make us fruitful. When he was raised from the dead, he gave every one of us the potential of new life. He gave us every one of us the potential of being fruitful. All that we need to be fruitful. To make our lives significant, to destroy all the powers of darkness in our lives, to break the demonic, to take away our fear, especially our fear of death, to deliver us from our own dark selves, to give us hope, to give us greater wholeness, and for us to be living proof that Messiah has come. So why does Christ make healing so hard if he's done that much for us? One of the things that most delights his heart is to live in our lives as Redeemer. But Christ needs to hear that we have things to redeem in our lives. He needs to hear there are areas we still have work to do. And what I have learned over the last 50 years of ministry is that Christ is more eager to bring healing and wholeness to our lives than we are willing to let him. And the invitation of Christ is not an easy one. What he wants from every one of us is a bit of honesty. We describe it as transparency. You may have been praying for 20 years for healing in an area of your life or greater wholeness or the breaking of a cycle, a habit, an addiction. You may just be a person full of fear, someone who's been deeply abused. Christ stands and he waits. But until we own it personally and tell others publicly, it doesn't move forward. You may be one of those that God has been gracious to and done remarkable things privately. But for the rest of us, there's a miserable journey ahead of us being real and honest with others. Let us pray.
as you wait on the Lord. Open your spirit to him and let him take a moment with you. Speak to him. Write it down. Speak to another person and tell them what it is you need from Christ. Where two or three are together, in my name I am guaranteed to be among you. And I want you, while our eyes are closed, if you're one of those that is making that declaration or even are thinking of the possibility of maybe at some time, then just raise your hand as a first step on that journey of declaring to Christ that you need his help. Bless you, bless you, bless you. And please don't let it stop there. See someone. Speak it out. The power of the enemy is in the secrets. And the healing of Christ is in the confessions and the declarations of our need. May God be gracious and give us what we need on his terms. Amen.